The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 99 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. We've got a really uplifting and inspiring show this week. But before we get into the conversation, I want to thank our reviewers, as always. Uh, On Apple Podcasts this week, we had six new reviews, and they were all five stars and gave the kindest words. We so appreciate our our listeners. Uh, The reviewers this week are Nosy5000, 94Noel, ItJoMoma, DCH Utah, Van Mick, and Bronco Fett. Thank you all so much for your kind words and your awesome reviews. It so helps us to be found when people are searching for uplifting content on Apple Podcasts. And there are other formats. If you could leave us a review wherever you listen, that would really be helpful. Uh, This week in the conversation, my guests are Mike Lloyd and Matt Parsons. These amazing men are ophthalmologists, and they recently took a trip to Mali in Africa and performed surgeries and and other eye care uh, services that they give, and it's so inspiring. And in a world that so much negativity, it seems, and and so many things going on, and it can be a little bit uh, disheartening, it's wonderful that there are men such as these, and they'll tell us all about their experiences. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I'll tell you all about having church in simple, humble, beautiful circumstances. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here in the Latter-day Live studio, I have some incredible friends who have had such an amazing adventure and have done tremendous service in the world. My guests today are Mike Lloyd and Matt Parsons. Mike and Matt are neighbors of mine who are also ophthalmologists and have recently had a great adventure. I have to mention that Matt's wife, Karen, is sitting here also, and we're so glad she's here because she was part of the experience. She's not going to be on air, but just wanted to recognize that we're glad Karen's here. So before we get into this incredible experience that you had on the other side of the world, Matt, let's hear a little bit about you. Where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Orem and uh, mostly have had Utah roots. Uh, I have had uh, experiences throughout the U.S., but always have considered Utah home. I am married to Karen, as you mentioned, and we have five kids. And I know your kids. Your kids are all amazing. Mike, what's your backstory? So I'm, I'm similar to Matt. I grew up in Orem uh, and a little bit in Salt Lake. Uh, I met my wife, Kim, in high school. We ran against each other for student council. That's how we met each other. <laughs> no kidding. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, she won. So that was okay. So I figured <laughs> if you can't beat him, you ought to join him. Uh, and so, no, we, we've, we, we've known each other for a long time. I went on my mission to the Philippines uh, and then came back. And, and shortly thereafter, Kim and I got married. We went through BYU together. We got four kids. Life is nicely centered in in Utah Valley, and and we're really happy with it. Awesome families. Recently, you guys had an incredible experience, and this is something, Matt, you've done a few times. I have. And Um, then, Mike, this was your first? This was my first. Awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about what you guys did and the organization you did it with? A few years back, I was asked by one of Mike's partners, Paul Olson, if I would be willing to join him in West Africa. And I had been to Africa a few times already, but only to Ethiopia. Uh, And I'd done a few other humanitarian trips in South America and in Armenia. Uh, So I was interested, and I joined him. And uh, so he's the one that got me interested in it. And uh, that was my first trip. It was a wonderful experience, and uh, so I've been back five times. So. Amazing. Where did you guys go on this last trip? Well, we always go to the same place. Yeah. Uh, we, oh, okay. We go to West Africa in a country called Mali, mm. and uh, the, the capital is Bamako, and, and we go to a village 
a, a couple hours south of Bamako called Walesa Bugu. Mm. Mike, how did you get involved in all this? When I was in fifth grade, we had an assembly. There was this group that came called the Walisi Bugu Alliance. Say that name again. Walisi Bugu. And I don't ask me to spell it. Walisi Bugu. Yeah, it starts with an O, ends with an O, yeah. and about 20 letters in between. Uh, but, but 30 years ago, or whatever, they had just come back. They were just getting started. It's a Salt Lake-based organization, and they talked about helping bring health and education and, and water to this tiny little place in West Africa. And as a fifth grader, my mind was kind of blown that there were people who didn't have what I had. Just, just kind of the idea of having this perspective of there's abject poverty, poverty in the world, and these people are trying to go do something about it. Fast forward to about seven years ago, uh, I'm in my practice here, and my new practice manager, Mike Clayton, invites me to go to meet at BYU with this group, with a couple of other healthcare providers. And I remember this connection that I had from when I was a kid. They have been for 30 plus years trying to facilitate having healthcare providers come to this tiny little village. I think 45 years ago, they tried to find the poorest place in the world mm. to try to do something to help the quality of life for these people. And so they've done water and agricultural and they've, they've really done groundbreaking, sustainable work where they try to make relationships with people. And, and our healthcare things that we do, that Matt and I do and, and other groups have done, tries to support their overall effort to help the quality of life for these people out in West Africa. So we met about six or seven years ago. Mike, he's my practice administrator slash my teenage boss when I worked at Hoagie Yogi. Um, <laughs> and that's a, that's a whole other podcast that's maybe. Great. But but, uh, <laughs> but he, said, he said, this is something we're doing. And I felt really strongly about it too. But West Africa and Mali in particular is not always the safest place to go. And so for years, I was kind of relegated, self-relegated to cheerleader, supporter, financier in some, in some ways to try to help represent and get people out there to do eye care work. And so when I found out that Matt was going, I was just so excited that we would have another great surgeon out there to help people. And so until last year, when I finally got the chance, our kids were old enough and there was enough relative stability in the region that Kim and I felt safe about going, uh, that I was able to go and I, and I brought my, my two oldest children with me. That is so amazing. And, and Matt, how many times have you been, did you say? Uh, five times to Mali and a couple of times to Ethiopia. Is, is this just a local organization or is this part of a national thing? No, it's the Wilisibugu Utah Alliance. It's just here. Started in Salt Lake City. Yeah. yeah. So this is not just an ophthalmology thing. This is all kinds of different doctors. They're bringing health care yeah. to this Each area. time we go, it's just an ophthalmology adventure. Yeah. But there are OBGYN docs that go. There are general surgeons that go. There are dentists that go. Yeah. Uh, it's not everything. There's only a, a few specialties that have found their way to this small village. Yeah. So what precautions? You, you, you decide you're going. Right. And, and Matt, you can look back at your first time. Mike, this was your first time. What what concerns did you have about going to Mali? You, you said there's been political instability. Has that happened while you've been there? Um, you've seen it or have haven't, you always felt safe? haven't seen it. The, the area that we work in is always very safe. As I said, it's about two hours south of Bamako. Uh, there was a time. Well, just as for a little background uh, in the country, the country was always pretty safe and stable until uh, yeah. Muammar Gaddafi fell and mm. Libya fell apart. And then the uh, radical elements of that region spread out into northern Mali and actually took over the entire north part of the country. Yeah. And it's a big country. And that uh, division was kind of at the capital city of Bamako. Because it's still a French protectorate, the French government got involved and pushed uh, the, these radical elements back mm, up in yeah. farther into the northern part of the country. Gotcha. And so Bamako has been relatively stable. There was one year, uh, however, that uh, there were five people that were killed uh, in a, uh, a restaurant that was frequently populated by uh, by Westerners, Europeans, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, patrons. Um, unbeknownst to us, hmm. we finished our trip the next day, 
and came back into Bamako and had a dinner at that very same restaurant. Oh, my gosh. And it wasn't until we got to the airport that we found out that that this had occurred. So... Yeah, when when you look on the the State Department website, uh, they have different criteria for classifications for travel safety, and Molly is the big red letters "Do not go here" <laughs> type of travel advisory. But but at the same time, we I felt really good about it, and and Kim and I talked. Uh, we have enough experience here; we know enough local people, and and really, you just have to fly into Bamako. Um, and, and the foundation did a great job. When we showed up, we had uh, an armed escort. We had guards with, you know, weapons who Which arm- probably increases the risk to you <laughs> rather than... I was going to say, somebody armed, is- armed escorts <laughs> yeah. at once, yeah. while reassuring, right. is also a little bit... Right. Mo- but, but it was funny to watch them. Mostly what they did was traffic management, because there is, mm. there is no organization... You know, there's there's one main highway, and and you you'll it, it'll be like I-15 with giant speed bumps on it every 20 feet or whatever. So <laughs> so there's there's no real rule of law, and so they 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 conducted traffic for us, and, and it would be like I-15 with traffic going in both directions on the same lane. Yes, yeah, just so. absolute chaos. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess my point is that with what the foundation did, and with the connections we had, and with where the village is compared to Bamako. Uh, the only concern we ever had was when we were in town, and even that was, I yeah. felt, really safe the whole time. So what are the preparations before you go? Shots? Yeah, you got to get a lot of immunizations, some yeah. of th- that you don't normally hear of. And sure. uh, uh, you've got to make sure your passport is current, which yeah. uh, you got to make sure your visa is current, which last year I found out uh, you should look at that before the... <laughs> Three days before you go, um, that's another miracle that occurred. How you get a visa signed sitting in Utah that has to be signed in Washington D.C. Yeah. and get it back in three days before you climb on the plane. Uh, uh, that's one of Mike's miracles that, yeah, he, that he, he he's able to do a lot. <laughs> that's it, pretty awesome. The the other thing is once you get into uh, Africa, we had part of our group go, and they got routed into Niger. Uh, and we're not really allowed to travel there, and and so there were a lot of long conversations, and 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 things get routed around. We ended up losing some of our equipment. Um, there there can be some harried things happen, and and yeah, you're not flying into Chicago, right? Yeah, I mean <laughs> this is this is a little bit different. So how how long is the flight, and where do you connect? Oh through? my gosh, uh, it's hours and hours. Salt uh, Lake, New York, New York, Paris, Paris, and Bamako. And that's, again, because it's a French protectorate. They have that Paris to Bamako flight. Right. And that's the only European flight. So it's probably 18 hours total, something like that. Something like that. You land, you feel fresh as a daisy, wonderful, rested. (laughs) This is, you know, and and Matt, you've taken your kids? Uh, I have. All all of my kids, except Marin, have been in Africa. Awesome. Uh, Marin was in Armenia, but uh, I... I guess at that point in my career, when she was a 15-year-old, I, I wasn't quite ready to take her yeah. to Africa. Yeah, that makes sense. And Mike, you're traveling with your kids, so you're not only thinking about yeah. equipment and the mission and everything, you're still dad on a trip with kids. Yeah, it was, it was, I had lots of hats on for that one. And, and fortunately, my, my first and foremost concern was my kids. And so I had, I had them kind of within eyesight and within arm's reach almost the entire trip. Yeah. You land in Bamako. Tell us about the illustrious Bamako Airport. Uh, well, it's actually not that bad anymore. Really? The first time I went, it was uh, uh, it was a little sketchy, uh, but it's it's pretty efficient now. Yeah, I, I've been impressed the last couple of times I've gone. You awesome. Know, so for a first timer, the the contrast between my impressions of the Bamako International Airport when we got there versus when we came back were really pretty striking. Because you get there and, and and they don't it's not particularly air conditioned well and there is there are parts of Africa that you can't really anticipate until you get there you know, there are there are smells and there are the sensations that you have uh, it's a different experience yeah um, my daughter Ashley when we first got there she she had a little bit of a culture shock she started freaking out for a few minutes until we got her to calm down and were able to get out um, and get moving. Um, but when we came back after being there for a week, 
we felt like it was the Ritz Carlton. I mean, we it was the nicest place we'd ever been. <laughs> and to have something like carpet on the floor was a, was a big deal. I there's, love that perspective. There's been a bit of an evolution, too, as we've formed relationships in Bamako, not only with the government, but with airport officials. Yeah. The first oh, okay. time we, we went, uh, we got hung up trying to get our equipment through for hours. Yeah. And... Finally, the only way we were able to get it through was uh, Mike Clayton offered a pair of glasses to the customs official, and all of a sudden everything cleared through. That's all it took. But it took us about four hours to figure that out. Now we've developed so many good relationships with with people that and done surgery on family members of some yep. of the air for, airport officials. So it's a pretty slick uh, operation getting us out of the airport. They know why we're there. Yeah. They recognize our bins when they come through. We come in with 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, Costco how many bins, Costco yeah. bins with the yellow lids. And so when they see all these bins coming down, they they know, okay, it's the doctors that are going to Walesa Bugu. So... Um, I can't. I can't imagine the logistics of all this. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean. I. I often am juggling. How are we going to take three suitcases instead of two? You've got all these bins. How many of you were traveling on this trip? Well, each time it's been different. Uh, the one of the times I went, I think there were only six of us that went, and last time we had. Close 30? to 30, yeah. Close to 30. Close to 30 people traveling yeah, together yeah. for all this. Technicians and translators and students and, and support members. And, and Mike Clayton uh, uh, sets down the rules. We get one carry-on, and the rest of the luggage is all equipment. Uh, you know, specified for equipment and supplies. Yeah. So we to travel internationally with just a carry-on for 10 days is, <laughs> you know, you're... That's you're, a lot. Yeah. So you leave the airport. How far away is about two hours, you said? About two-hour drive? Yeah. yeah, I think so. One of the relationships that Mike Clayton has fostered is with the bus driver. One of the other ones is with one of the guys that hangs out in the airport parking lot trying to sell tourism packages to people to take them to Timbuktu and to the various different places that tourists will go in in uh, Bamako. So so people at the airport know us. Our, our bus driver is one that has had a long relationship with Mike, uh, both business and friends. And and so that's one of the things that makes it uh, easier for us is uh, is that Ozzy takes care of us. Incredible. You know? Yeah. Tell me the name of the town again. Walesa Bugu. Walesa Bugu. That's I how I say it. I will forget that in about 11 seconds. <laughs> Walesa Bugu. Mike well, pronounces a little different, and I have no idea uh, which way is correct. We're going to refer to it as town. <laughs> yes. Or village. Town. Village, village is probably better. Village, yeah. village yeah. is a great way to put that. Thank yeah. you, Mike. Yes, yeah. village. So you guys get into the village. What uh, What's it like coming into the village? I mean, they've had you there before. Mm-hmm. So you come in. You, Matt, maybe you see people that you've met before. Mike, what was your first impression as you pulled into this uh, village? Yeah, so, so this trip was uh, the only the only reference point I had was my mission, uh, and and because I served in a third world country, that was really helpful for me. Uh, I, I told my kids several times, this I haven't smelled this smell in thirty years. Um, but, but you go down and, and there's not a lot of infrastructure and there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, a lot of architecture. It's mostly single dwelling homes and the, the Alliance has kind of a compound, um, because they don't have a lot of security. Most of the homes are, are built on in compounds where there's a big, tall wall with shards of glass along the top of the wall and barbed wire and things like that. And so, and so we're going through these dirt lanes and, and we're going past, you know, masses of humanity. And then the next thing you know, you're stopped and you're getting out of the bus. And because there's 30 of us, there are people who are telling you what to do. And you're kind of just shuffling along and you go, you know, in, in this four foot gap along the road in, in through the gates into this compound. And the kids, the kids who live in the neighborhood know who we are. They know we have candy. They know we love to, to see them and to help. And so the kids throng and grab at you and, and pull at your fingers and, and grab onto your clothes and, uh, and it's it's at the same time really sweet uh, and and really endearing, but also if you're not used to it, really kind of uncomfortable. And, it's a friendly throng. It is, yeah. they, but they if really you're not are. used to it, it, it can be it can a little right. unsettling. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. 
Yeah. What is the language spoken Dep- in the village? What's, is there a is primary Bombara. language? Yeah, Bombara. Bombara. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're not fluent in Bombara. <laughs> By the way, our head translator was just selected as the person to translate the Book of Mormon into Bombara. Yeah. Just, oh my gosh! Just in How the last couple of weeks, that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is phenomenal. That's a whole other podcast, probably too. Just the the development of the church in West Africa, um, I think, nicely coincides with the last decade, and and particularly with some of the work that the alliance has done um, with the with the relationships they have and and the influence they've made. Uh, it's been amazing. When I first showed up, uh, uh, well, let's back up, because there were some baptisms in Mali three decades ago, uh-huh. and the church was a fledgling, not an organization, just a few members. Yeah. But those members fell away, and there was no organ- no church at all there until Yesamake, who happens to be a former mayor, is actually the ambassador to India from Mali. Anyway, he's the backup. He was the uh, a mayor at the time when I first showed up there. He was the mayor of the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an original translator for this Walesa Bugu Alliance. That's how he got introduced to the church. He became he came to BYU. Yep. He currently has a home in Highland as well as as in uh, Bamako. He was the only member of the church along with his wife when I first showed up there. Seven years ago, something like that. How awesome. Now there's a, a branch and a group uh, and growing. And, and I think this week, uh, this week for the first time ever, there are full-time missionaries. It's part of the Ivory Coast mission. Um, wow. Yeah, so John and Ann in, Lewis. Oh, in fact, they, I think they just showed up yesterday. Yeah, just like current, real time. right now, there Literally, are missionaries showing up. Yes, the, for first, the first four time. missionaries in Mali. Yeah. In Mali. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What an exciting time to be alive in the mm-hmm. church, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you get to uh, the village. You what? What comes next? You've got to set up shop. The first thing that we have to do is we started doing corneal transplants there uh, a, a couple of times ago, and the corneal tissue that we bring with us, and there's a time limit on it. So we actually go directly to the hospital and do transplants that very evening. How equipped is the hospital for the work you guys do? Um, It's a whole lot better than it was seven years ago. Uh, There's actually a pretty decent facility that uh, was built maybe 10 years ago, and then it sat empty for a number of years. But it's been functional the last two times I've been there. And so it's a decent uh, facility. Um, And uh, when, when we first went there, it was... Uh, the operating room was a room about three-fourths the size of the room we're sitting in, and it was an oven. It was a literal oven, and it was uh, very, very difficult to work in. So the facility we work in now is is pretty nice. It has generally functional air conditioning. Not, and I don't want to take away from Matt's description, but it's a little bit... I mean, I don't know how bad it was before... But it's about as well equipped as an empty tiled room. I mean, it, it, you show up and it is smaller than this studio. Uh, it's basically big enough to have two patients lay down, uh, to have two surgeons operating, and to have one technician kind of going back and forth between the two of them. Um, and, and and you have to kind of get the patient out before you can get out. Um, but But at the same time, it's better than anything they've ever had before. And, it, and it's good enough to allow us to do our work. When Jeff and I went the year before Mike and I did, we tried to fit three beds in the room <laughs> and because we wanted to try to be as efficient as we could, but I couldn't get behind the microscope without crawling over the top of the, the bed to get there. So I don't want to take so, away that it's better than it used to be, but... Yeah, but yeah it's important, I think, that that's, that's a point of reference. You have to have that reference point to understand how good it is maybe now, right? but we're really talking about, uh, you know, it's, it's not what you guys operate in every day oh geez it's easier to relax in the operating rooms here yeah yeah Yeah, i can imagine so someone has already been there lining up someone must do pre-work to get uh no patient's gonna be oh well yeah that's that's true they 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 have the knowledge that we're going to be there and there is a local ophthalmologist that we've worked with from day one he's a young 
you know, very vibrant ophthalmologist yeah. that works mostly at Abamaco, but he spends a couple of days a week in Wulasabugu. So when we're not there, he's there. And so he knows we're coming. And so he's, you know, getting the word out and looking for patients that he wants to confer with us on. And word gets around. Uh, this is all word of mouth, but we had people from Sierra Leone walk to West Africa. We had people from the Ivory Coast get on a bus and come. When when we screened those corneal transplants, there was only one or two of the six of them who were actually from Mali. And yeah, actually, the, of the the three that we did last time, one was from uh, Sierra, no, Ivory Coast. Yeah, Ivory Coast. And one was from Senegal. Burkina was oh. it Senegal? Oh, Senegal. Yeah, yeah. not Ivory Coast. Senegal. Yeah. And the other one was, I believe, was from Burkina, Burkina Faso. Faso. Yeah. yeah. So if you're not up on your Western African geography, these are all Less, yeah yeah <laughs> these these are neighboring neighboring countries along along that kind of horn yeah, of Africa. We're coming from a long way uh-huh. for these services now. Not knowing anything about why you get a corneal transplant, tell us a little bit about what. What a corneal tra- or why why did these people need this? And well, how does that affect their lives? As far as I'm aware, until we did corneal transplants uh, two years ago, three years ago now for the first time, there had never been a corneal transplant performed in West Africa. You need a corneal transplant because these people live in villages where there's fire and sticks and trauma and infections and injuries and disease and if it causes a scar in your cornea you can't see you lose the vision and there's no other way to restore vision so there are just many 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 people who lose the vision in their eye or eyes and have no way to to treat it they just accept it and live with it and that's part of the way of life that they have embraced is you accept what God gives you, yeah. you accept it as fate, and uh, you go forward as best you can. You know, it, it's it's hard for us to comprehend living your whole life in a place where you don't have an emergency room, you don't have Instacares, you don't, for the most part, have any doctors or any reliable medicine. And so when something bad happens to you, you have to, uh, you just have to deal with it. That's, your, your lot is adversity. And so maybe maybe to speak to your point from their perspective, um, you you have a close personal family member who lives with you and is dependent on you for all things because they're blind in both eyes. And you hear that in the village down there, the doctors are going to come. And so you get up and you walk. And, and we had hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people come um, many of them blind in both eyes to the point where they can see movement only. Uh, and they come with hope that, that their life can be different. Uh, and so they, they just come and they'll wait in line and they'll, they'll sleep out at the compound and they'll wait. They'll wait for a chance to get an evaluation. They'll wait for a chance and a hope. And one of the surgery. hardest things we have to deal oh, with, man. and I know Michael fe- Mike feels the same way because I heard him say this the last time we were there. There are many people that are more blind than what he described. They're totally blind yeah. in both eyes, and many of them cannot be treated. Yeah. Mm. And so they'll spend days walking to yep. get there. They'll spend sometimes two or three days waiting to see you, and you'll sit down, and within two minutes, you know that there's nothing you can do to help them, and you have to give them that information, and yeah. that's, that's difficult. Um, How hard is that to see that reaction? You know, these people don't react. They're they're very stoic. Right. When we give them an injection for surgery, we put a needle behind their eye, and people in the U.S. without <laughs> sedation are, you know, wiggling and screaming. Even the most stoic uh, Americans are tensing up. You put a needle behind their eye, these people don't even flinch. Yeah. They say nothing. They don't move. They're tough. Their breathing remains the same. So... They're accustomed to difficult things in their life. So when you give them bad information, they accept it and they go on. But I'm sure it's difficult inside. Mm. But the reaction is different than what we're used to. And and on our side, we've spent not an insignificant amount of effort to come and help them. 
uh, and and we want to do something for every single person who's there. We our whole the whole thing that gets us up and and has us do that is to to help people. And so to have somebody come and spend five days walking and sleeping out on the side of the road and and coming to the office or to the clinic. I mean, I cried more times each day um, over the hard news that I had to give people, and and I was crying more than they were. And maybe I'm just emotional or whatever, but but it's really hard to to have something that could otherwise be fixed but there's nothing you can do about it in that situation on the bright side uh there there are a lot of things we do do to help people so the the cataracts when we remove a cataract within a matter of days they're seeing pretty well yeah and so for people to have been without vision and then within a few days be be seen quite well is is remarkably rewarding yeah on the flight home, I was thinking about my kids, uh, and part of the reason I wanted them to come was was this change idea. Uh, and it's a long flight, and so you have plenty of time to reflect on things. Uh, and the thought that came to me was, all of us can have amazing, transformative experiences. All of us can go, I mean, we could take anybody and we could put them on a plane and they could show up in Bamako. Whether it changes us, however, is up to us. We have to let it change us because you can come home and you can go through this adjustment period and you can say, oh, this is so weird and so different. But if you can, if you'll allow yourself to learn the things that you did and remember and apply the things that you had in that experience, then it can truly change and transform you. And so that that's a lesson for returned missionaries. That's a lesson for anybody who's ever felt the spirit. It's a lesson for for anyone who's had good things happen in their life. Um, those things happen to you for a reason, um, and it's it's your opportunity there to let that change you. Mm, I love that. One of the things that Karen and I have learned, I think, from going to Mali is that while Mali is about 97% Muslim, yeah. so you can't call it a Christian nation, mm. but we sure met a lot of Christ-like Beautiful. people yeah. while yeah. we were there. And you know the the these are good, good people, and they want to be good. And so I think it is it's it's just a place that is destined for, I think, the spirit being there. You guys mentioned uh, that there are church services there now. Were you guys able to go to church while you were there? So Mike did. I actually was still doing corneal transplants because, as as I said, those those have to be done within a matter of hours of right. getting there. Because you're so, using actual tissue; it's yeah. a true corneal transplant. Yeah. So I have been to church there two or three times. Awesome. Uh, but uh, why don't you give your impression of church, church services, Mike? Yeah, so over the last several years, there have been enough people. There have been enough return missionaries moved to the area, uh, and enough people who have been baptized that there's enough for two different units. Uh, there's a Bamako branch where they have a rented hall, and people come and worship, and it's it's just like a branch of the church anywhere else where um, they'll come and hold their church services. And then there's a, I think actually the official name is the Chicken Farm Group. Uh, the Chicken Farm Group? <laughs> chicken one Farm Group. the best group. names I've ever heard. Uh, that's awesome. That is the official name. <laughs> that is so cool. So, so this is... A little bit lengthy, but one of the people we reached out to a couple of years ago uh, were the shepherds uh, down in Springville. They're they're big egg farmers and chicken farmers, and we'd let them know about what was going on and asked them if they wanted to play a role. Um, and so they've they've started this development where they've established a chicken farm and they have I don't know ten thousand chickens or something. More than that, I okay. think it's close to twenty five thousand. Yes, but one thing to wow. mention a lot of is chickens. that the chicken farm was started before the shepherds were involved. Oh, that's helpful. Mike no, approached them to try to resurrect it and to save it because it was it was failing, yeah. and the shepherds have such a deep knowledge of how to handle this sort of thing. Once they got involved, boy, they have uh, grabbed it and gone, and they've yeah. embraced it and. They have made it into a very successful, awesome, uh, major chicken farm in that area, um, and it's uh, uh, you know it's the proceeds of that not only employ church members that right. are there and provide income for the family members that work there, but provide a place for them to meet for church, and also an income to uh, help support some of uh, Mike Clayton's. 
ideas of humanity. So, you know, self, self-reliance and, and yeah. microfinance, uh, all kind of going on. And so, and so the, the church members come uh, and you meet, and it's an outdoor, it's kind of just a, a roofed facility with open walls. And, like and, a little pavilion. Yeah, a pavilion's a great word for it. Uh, and the Not chicken, even a, an actual building building. No, no, no. No. Mean uh, it's just area. like a pavilion down yeah. at Linden uh, Park. Yeah, yeah, wow. That's what it's like. And and the chickens, you can see the the building, and you can smell, and you can hear the chickens, and then you'll have you know dozens of kids running around singing primary songs, and they're trying to lead people and singing the hymns, and you have. Uh, Hence, the name is very appropriate. Chicken farming group. <laughs> uh, what was your kids' takeaway from church? So I, I think there were I think there were two honest reactions. One one was. The, the thing that you'll hear a lot, which is, well, this is the same as what we do at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, pl- they pass the sacrament, and my son Braden gave a, gave a talk uh, that was translated into French and Bambara and, and, and was really simple. Um, and people come, uh, and they participate, and they worship together, and, and you can feel the Spirit. It doesn't matter what the building is. It doesn't matter where you are and those things. You, you're participating in the sacrament, which is an ordinance. And so that was, that was similar to what we experience at home. And the other is, is wow, this is really, really different. They, ha- they had to dig into the dirt a little, a little font. Uh, and they didn't. They couldn't dig it deep enough, and so they had a little plywood font that they they lined with plastic, and they filled with water. Um, and we had a baptismal service the Saturday night before church services, uh, and and so in that way, kind of like you asked, that's really different than what we have. The other thing that's different is that uh, it has to be translated not once but twice. Right. <laughs> so you you give a talk, you give a paragraph, and then someone translates it from Bambara into French, and then somebody translates it from Bambara into English, uh, or sometimes they're speaking in, in French. Uh, I assume uh, your son spoke in English, so yeah. that was, you know, vice versa, translated the other way, but it goes three ways. And so I guess for anybody who's traveled internationally, I've had this experience a few times, you, you often exist in this kind of, s- this feeling of, of not knowing everything that's going on. You can't communicate fluently with the people or the processes, and so you're a little bit disadvantaged in all of your interactions. And then you go to church, and you're like, no, 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 I speak church. <laughs> I love that. I, 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 can, oh, I, I know what's going on. I, I recognize this tune, and I can, sing the, I can sing the hymns, and I know what the sacrament is about, and I know what we're doing now. Mm. Um, and so there's this tremendous feeling of comfort uh, and familiarity and love and, and, and the Spirit. And so that's really cool. You guys are doing this amazing work in such a place that truly needs the, the services you're providing. Rather than going big and talking about all the people that you served, is there one patient that stands out that you will kind of carry maybe them specifically with you that you could tell our listeners about? Well, one that comes to mind immediately, the very first trip I went, we worked hard all week, we got a lot done, helped a lot of people, felt really good about ourselves. We had everything loaded up in the trucks. We were just climbing in the vehicles to leave and head to the airport. And a lady walks up who's obviously completely blind in both eyes. And she's putting her hand out asking for help. And we had to walk away. So I thought about her for a long time and looked for her the next time we were there and looked for her the next time we were there and never saw her. Two years ago, she showed up and we were able to get her eyes fixed. And that was a great experience. So I don't know how long she was without vision, but I know it was at least four or five years. Mike? Uh, We had a little girl come in with her mom four, five, six, a, a young girl come in. Young. Um, and as you look in the pupil, normally the pupil is black, but in her right eye, the pupil was white. Uh, and so the lens sits behind the iris, and, that, and she had a white cataract, a, kind of a childhood congenital cataract. Um, and the mom brought her some distance, because, and, and some, things are unifer- some things are universal, because her friends were making fun of her, because she looked different. 
Uh, and this is something that was never going to get better. It was never going to resolve. Um, I had some concerns about operating on a little on a little child. Uh, we didn't really have the great uh, great facilities for that, and it was it was a concern. And so Matt was so great to to talk with and and work with. We talked to our anesthesiologist, and the three of us said, "We don't want to do this if it's not going to be safe. We don't want to do it if it's not going to be controlled." But we would really like to do this. Uh, and so we, we talked about it and, and found a way to, to come in early. Uh, we got up and we, and we did the surgery where we removed the cataract and cleared all that white milky stuff out of her visual access. Um, and, and we did it safely and we did it easily and quickly uh, and, and as, as an answer to prayer. And then to, to see her the next day come and take the bandages off and to see her mom open that up and see that little girl with, with a totally normal-looking eye again, uh, that was a big deal. I don't think I'll ever forget that. What's, what's your biggest takeaway from having done this now a few times or the biggest lesson you've learned from this? Wow. Um, I thought you said this was a 35-minute <laughs> podcast. We're wrapping up. No, we're wrapping up now. This is the, we're, no, but we're this heading is into the home stretch. But this is an hour-long question or answer, I mean. I think I've learned that God cares about every one of his children. You know, he doesn't create poverty. He doesn't create political instability and greed and corruption. It It is part of our world, and we deal with it. But he, he creates ways for people to see that he cares about them and loves them. And uh, I think he does have awareness of every child in every village. These little villages around Walesabugu, some of them had never seen a doctor in their village until we walked in. And they'd never seen a general practice doctor or a, an OBGYN. They'd never seen any kind of doctor. And so it's, I, I think, I guess I would say that. I've, no matter how small the village is in the poorest areas of the world, I think I think I've learned God is aware of them and and loves them just like He does us. Beautiful. I have no idea why we have some of the things we do that make our life easier. Yeah. We're just lucky, I guess. Uh, mm. But I don't think God loves us anymore. Yeah. Mike, um, so it, it dovetails nicely with Matt's answer, um, which is. Um, there's a tremendous amount of need or opportunity to give service. And and most of what we do in life is oblivious to that. We, we get up and we go to work or school and we, we live our lives and, and most of our needs are met as long as we're kind of in a self-centered type of mode. And even even wonderful people who are, who are not selfish, um, we kind of just live our lives because that's what we've always done. When you know, when you become aware of the tremendous ocean of need out there, it can be really overwhelming. And you say, how on earth can I do this? And you can question, is what I'm doing making even that much of an impact? But the the thought came to me and and the realization that we just do what we can do. Mm. You you just help who you can help. and, And you do what you can do and you serve who you can serve and you love as many people as you can, and that's your offering. Uh, as insignificant or as imperfect as it is, I think that's what Heavenly Father wants us to do, is to, to just give what we have, uh, give what we can and, and do all that we can. And, and I love the concept of grace, which is He makes up the difference and He makes it okay. Um, I don't know why we have the adversity we have in this life and all the diverse economic conditions but but i know that if we can love other people uh, and and do what we can to help others then i think we're doing our heavenly father's work beautiful if people want to know more about the utah alliance if they want to get involved or donate or whatever what's the best way for them to find the alliance i have a website um that hopefully you can put a link to on your we'll podcast. share on social media for sure. I, I know they have a website and, yeah. and they have people who are happy to help and take donations and give yeah. advice. We're going to wrap up with the question we ask every one of our guests, which is what does being a member of the church mean to you? Matt, you want to go first? I, I don't know that it means something to me as much as it is who I am. Yeah. 
and I was born a member of the church. I've I've lived with it all my life. I've seen a lot of the world that doesn't have the gospel, and uh, both in Hong Kong and in Armenia and uh, Peru, uh, Guatemala. I've been to a lot of places in the world that don't have the gospel, and I, I've also seen what the gospel can do in the lives of people, what gifts it can give them for not only for a happy life, but hope and understanding of the future. And so for me, I, I think it, it is who I am. I don't know how to answer what it means to me because mm. it's a, it's that's I can't separate it from me. It's a perfect answer. It's great, Mike. So the, my membership in the church, or my being a member of the church, um, fills me with a I think a duty and an obligation. Although those aren't the words I would like to use. Um, it, it, calls me to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, and, and that has inherent to it obligations or duties. I, I'm supposed to love other people and, and help and, and offer service um, and, and mourn with those who mourn. In addition, as I respond to those things, the church helps me. It's a tremendous resource to navigate the world that we live in. Um, it, it's a context I can put the adversity that I face in life into. And I can say, you know what? When I look at this from an eternal perspective, this thing which may be so urgent and so really temporally important becomes not that big of a deal. Uh, and, and these things maybe that I can dismiss uh, because they're not so urgent to me become really, really important. Mm. And so it's a framework uh, that I use to live my life. And it's a resource, it's a it's a place where universal truths reside, and that's a comfort to me. Mm. Uh, life can be chaotic and, and cruel. We had a good friend and neighbor pass away just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And in some way, that can be a senseless, tragic accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you don't have a gospel context, it can be something that has no meaning whatsoever. Or you can talk about the, the value of people being sealed, and you can talk about families being forever, and you can talk about the meaning of those relationships. Mm. Um, and so my, my membership in the church, church is a tremendous resource for me uh, in times of adversity. Such a great answer, both of you. I think that was wonderful, and I want to give full credit to Karen for all the work that you do, <laughs> though we're not interviewing you uh, Karen on, was on crucial. these missions. <laughs> We'll share all the information on our social media. Please go check it out. Get involved. Donate. I can't imagine a better cause. They are ophthalmologists. They do an incredible service, and they are obviously incredible men of God. Mike and Matt, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Lives with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, thank you very much. And my special thanks to Mike Lloyd and Matt Parsons for coming on and sharing this incredible experience that they've had, and for all the humble, quiet service that they give that so changes the lives of others. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to them. Absolutely great men. This week in my Latter-day life, as I pondered what uh, Mike and Matt were describing as the circumstances and uh, the building, or not even the building as they described it, the pavilion, uh, for church, I, I got to thinking back on my life. And again, I've been very blessed to travel and have gotten to go to church in all over Latin America and Europe and Asia and throughout the United States. But as I thought back to truly unique circumstances for church, uh, this week I started thinking back to Lake Shasta. It's a lake in Northern California. And about every other year, for many years, our family and another family Uh, the Daltons, we would rent a houseboat and we'd spend the week on the houseboat and we'd bring, you know, a couple of ski boats with us and just spend a week on the lake. And it was so much fun, always a really good time. And usually we were there across a Sunday. And of course, on Sunday, when you're traveling, you can't always have a perfect Sabbath, but you do want to set the tone. And my, our parents certainly wanted to do that. And one of the things that I remember is in addition to, you know, we didn't actually go ski on Sundays. We we tried to keep it a little more mellow. But our fathers were able to get permission to hold sacrament meeting 
while we were out on the lake. And so we would dock the boat just onto the shore. I mean, there was no way to get to a church. And so each night, you know, we would pull the, the houseboat up to the shore and tie it off. And on Sunday morning, we took chairs and the boys, there were um, five of us boys ranging in age, we would be assigned to get the chairs and to take them up onto the rocky shore. And we would set up uh, an area where we were going to have sacrament meeting. And it was such a beautiful place. And we would, we would all get dressed up as well as we could, you know, with whatever we had brought for vacation, for a houseboat vacation. But we'd set up chairs and we sat down and we opened our sacrament meeting and we sang. And uh, I don't remember if we had testimony meeting or if somebody gave a talk. But what I remember most is that once we were old enough, it was to us boys to pass the sacrament. And here we were on the rocky shore out in the middle of this you know, beautiful country uh, right on the shores of this lake. And I just remember thinking, wow, sacrament meeting can be anywhere. And much like uh, Mike and Matt were saying, what's amazing is not the differences, it's the similarities. It's the spirit that I felt. It's the hymn, and it's the taking of the sacrament. It's taking that time to ponder. And I don't remember everything about that, but that did stick with me. And what I remember most is, wow, sacrament meeting is really important to my parents. Taking the sacrament, honoring the Sabbath, these things are really important. And there was definitely a special spirit as we held these meetings there. I'm grateful for my parents and for the Daltons and and for all the people who have shown me over the course of my life how important church is. And again, it doesn't matter if you're meeting in a pavilion in Mali, uh, Africa, or if you are in Lake Shasta or your local chapel or wherever you go, as long as the Spirit is there and you're taking that opportunity to uh, reconnect with Christ, that's all that really matters. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We really appreciate it. If you get a chance to leave us a five-star review, we are always grateful. If you can think of someone who would enjoy these incredible guests that we get, if you could share it with them, that'd be great. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at Sean at Latter-day Lives. Dot com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. So until next week, when we'll have another fantastic episode. In fact, next week, it's the 100th episode behind the scenes look. Uh, please remember, as always, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.